Hello and welcome back to the fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode two called The Path to Glory. And since we need to know what Rome was to understand why it fell, we'll continue with the extraordinary story of Rome's rise to power in the third and second centuries BC. So, picking up from where I left off in the last episode, having won its great war with Carthage, everything seemed to be going unbelievably well for the Romans. It was almost too good to be true. Indeed, by the year 133 BC, the entire Mediterranean basin was under Rome's sway either through direct conquest or alliance. Indeed, it seemed as if Rome had conquered this empire almost in a fit of absent-mindedness as the creation of the British Empire was once famously described. One example of this occurred in 133 BC when Attalus III, the last king of Pergamum, a major Greek state in modern western Turkey, simply bequeathed his kingdom to Rome as the best way of ensuring the safety of his subjects in the face of Rome's seemingly inevitable rise to power. So what really happened? Well, there's no doubt that Rome benefited enormously from an unprecedented power vacuum that developed in the eastern Mediterranean in the 2nd and 1st centuries BC, essentially due to the weakness of Alexander the Great's successor states. The three main ones, which included Macedonia, the Seleucid Empire, the Ptolemaic Empire, and even a lesser fourth one if you include the Kingdom of Pergamon, had in origin been superpowers in their own right, but they had all declined in both economic, political and military effectiveness as Alexander's legacy proved to be a hollow shell. So why did the Greek successor states fail? Well, a detailed discussion of that subject is certainly outside the scope of this podcast, but one obviously significant contributor to their decline was that they fought each other most of the time. A hundred years of inconclusive fighting between the Ptolemaic, Seleucid and Antigonid empires undermined their military resources and political authority. The situation was somewhat similar to the endemic conflict between the Greek city-states that in particular undermined the strength and authority of Athens and Sparta in the 5th century BC, leading to the Macedonians' opportunity to assert their own authority over the Greek mainland in the 4th century. This mutually destructive conflict was replicated in a similar fashion by Alexander the Great's successor states. The difference for them was that their decline allowed Rome to become the equivalent of the new Macedonian Empire. In order to assess Rome's rise to power, it is worth pausing just for a moment to consider how fortunate it was not to meet these powers at an earlier stage of its history. Indeed, one of the main reasons for Rome's success, I suggest, was its geographic location just on the westward periphery of the ancient civilised world. For this kept it out of the reach of Alexander the Great's empire. Counterfactual hypotheses can often be too speculative to be useful, but the question of what might have happened had, for example, Alexander the Great not died at the age of 33, due probably to heavy drinking at one of his riotous parties, is worth considering, especially since he was contemplating the westward expansion of his empire shortly before his untimely death. Now, 
Macedonian conquest of Italy would no doubt have been relatively easy at that time and would presumably have eliminated Rome from the history books. In addition, what would have happened had Alexander's successor states united against Rome? The answer must be that Rome's path to greatness would undoubtedly have been much more difficult or indeed impossible. Simply put, the Romans got lucky. Polybius, the Greek historian, who is particularly interesting because he's left us with a fascinating description of Rome's rise to power and his analysis of what drove that, ascribed Roman success to the strengths of both Roman government and its army. He admired Rome's republican constitution principally because it stopped despots and dictators seizing power and using it for their own ends. And he also greatly admired the rigorous professionalism of the Roman army. So we're now going to look in more detail at these two points and we'll kick off with the Roman army, which has become so famous in films like Gladiator and countless Hollywood films that portray the Roman legionaries in their famous red cloaks and wearing their special armour in metal strips, which was called Lorica Segmentata in Latin. So what was the truth about the Roman army? Now, it may sound surprising, but in the earliest centuries of the Roman Republic, so around 500 BC, there was nothing special at all about the Roman army. The word legion, which has become synonymous with military quality just as much as panzer division in the Second World War or Viking in the Middle Ages, originally conveyed no such intimidating quality. Indeed, the Latin word for legion is legio, simply meaning a levy of militia soldiers. This was no different originally from any other Italian or Greek city-state, as the Roman levy grew in size reflecting the city's growth. The legio was divided into two legios, probably around 362 BC and by 311 BC into four. Originally, if anything distinguished the legions or legios, it was neither their ferocity nor their quality, but quite simply their numbers. As described in the first episode, the Roman army's success against Pyrrhus and the Greek city-states in southern Italy was largely due to the availability of superior resources and manpower. This was almost entirely because of Rome's impressive network of allies, which allowed it to mobilise much larger armies than those of its Etruscan, Gallic and ultimately Carthaginian adversaries. Pyrrhus's army, for example, was worn down through his Pyrrhic victories as Rome's ability for mass mobilisation denied the better trained Greek soldiers the complete victory they needed. Roman mass mobilisation was also what frustrated Hannibal's superior military machine when he invaded Italy in the Second Punic War. But during the Punic Wars or Carthaginian Wars, and as Rome turned east to take on Alexander the Great's successor states, something else happened to the Roman army which started to distinguish it from its opponents. And this was really a marked rise in its professionalism, as the Greek historian Polybius ruefully noted. Indeed, in the second century, the Roman legionary reinvented ancient battlefield tactics by making the Greek phalanx redundant. 
Now, the Greek phalanx was the tank of the ancient world and dominated warfare for most of the 3rd century BC. It consisted of large numbers of pikemen wielding 16-foot or 6-metre pikes in a formation a bit like a hedgehog. Invented by King Philip II of Macedon in the 4th century and used by his son Alexander the Great to devastating effect against the Achaemenid Persian armies, it became the standard military unit in all the Hellenistic armies of the Greek successor states. However, the phalanx was deeply flawed if it was managed poorly on the battlefield. Although it was always extremely difficult for an enemy to stop a full frontal assault by the phalanx, the pikemen were very vulnerable to attack on their unprotected sides. In Alexander's day, he overcame this flaw by using cavalry and heavy infantry to protect the flanks of the phalanx. Indeed, Alexander never regarded the phalanx as the key to unlocking victory. He merely used it as a way of blocking enemy attacks while his superb cavalry dealt the knockout blows to his enemies in brilliantly executed manoeuvres. The problem that emerged, however, for the Greek successor states as Rome became more powerful was that they simply didn't have generals as skilled as Alexander the Great and consequently the phalanx's flaws became increasingly clear and it was the Romans who really proved able to exploit this deficiency the best. Because in contrast to the Greeks, the Romans had never liked using a phalanx formation. It wasn't well suited either to the hilly Italian countryside or to the open order fighting of the Gauls. Instead, in the 4th century, the Romans started to use small combat units of infantry called maniples. These were normally 120 men strong and could be used very flexibly in defence and attack. In particular, they could swarm around the unprotected flanks of the phalanxes, massacring the pikemen who were locked into an unwieldy and tight formation. And this is exactly how the Romans defeated the Greek states in the east. For example, in 197 BC, the Romans completely outmanoeuvred the vast 16,000 man strong Macedonian phalanx at the Battle of Sinosophile and slaughtered thousands of pikemen. The Seleucid phalanx suffered the same fate at the Battle of Magnesia in 190 BC. Polybius, the Greek historian, wrote that the Roman maniples had changed the course of history. The early Romans also used a throwing javelin in place of a spear. This proved remarkably successful in close quarter combat since the launch of these missiles unnerved opposing infantry and cavalry before combat was joined. Again, it was particularly deadly against Greek phalanx and hoplite formations. So the Romans' increasing military prowess, in addition to their ability to field large armies, was a game-changer in the ancient world. But what was the reason for the emergence of this growing military know-how and self-confidence? Again, we must turn to our most reliable and insightful source for the early Roman army, the Greek historian Polybius. Writing in the 2nd century BC, Polybius described the Roman army's discipline as its greatest asset. As an example of this, he emphasised that the death penalty was the punishment for pretty much any misdemeanour, from falling asleep on sentry duty to being caught drunk on duty or stealing. Polybius also noted, with perhaps 
too much enjoyment that the execution of disobedient soldiers was particularly brutal, normally involving the unfortunate individual being clubbed to death by his erstwhile comrades. Polybius also highlighted that bravery in battle was both rewarded with a system of medals and decorations, which, to be honest, are very similar to those in modern armies, while cowardice or even just losing one's equipment in battle would be met with execution, prompting soldiers, as Polybius wrote, quote, when they have lost their shield or sword or any other part of their arms in the time of action to throw themselves precipitately into the very midst of the enemy, hoping either to recover what they've lost or to avoid by death the reproaches of their fellow soldiers and the disgrace that is ready to receive them, end quote. What was it that created this discipline? The answer seems to lie with the formation of a corps of professional soldiers at the heart of the legions. This seems to have begun to happen during the Punic Wars, which were Rome's greatest military test until the 3rd century AD, which will be a key subject for us later on, and required not just a massive expansion of the army, but also the requirement for soldiers to fight in distant lands and to form garrisons thousands of miles from home for more than a year or so. This meant that for a growing number of men within the citizen militia levy, which was normally used to returning home after a few months of combat, there was an opportunity to view soldiering as a full-time profession, indeed even a lifetime occupation. A good example of this lies with Livy's description of a particularly highly regarded centurion called Spurius Ligustinus. He retired with many honours and decorations in 171 BC, having risen through the ranks to become the senior centurion of the first Roman legion in a military career that lasted 22 years. Such a long and devoted career was not the norm before the Punic Wars, when Roman citizens were required to serve no more than six years maximum and to be available for further service as a sort of reservist uh, called an evocatus up to a maximum of 16 years in total. So it was the development of this professional corps of soldiers that really started to give the Roman army its competitive edge during the years of republican expansion. And of course this would continue to develop and become one of the defining features of the imperial uh, period of the Roman Empire, as we will discuss later. So by the second century BC, Rome's dominant position in the ancient world was clear for all to see. Good luck had certainly played its part, but Polybius's admiration for the Roman constitution and its army were both genuine reasons for Roman success. However, in the next century, these two features of early Rome came into conflict and military success became a driver for individual ambition. The first century BC in particular witnessed a series of prominent Roman politicians using military strength to advance their own political careers. The striking effect of this was a move away from republicanism and towards despotism or in Roman terms initially at least towards what they called dictatorship. But before we get to this, let's complete the story of the Republican Roman army. And the next major step forward occurred with the rise to power of someone called Gaius Marius, who lived from 157 to 86 BC. 
He was seven times Roman consul and widely regarded as the father of the Roman army. Now, Marius came to office at a time of military crisis. In 105 BC, the Roman army in southern Gaul suffered a resounding defeat at Arazio, uh, that's near to modern Orange, at the hands of invading Germanic tribes, the Cimbri and Teutones. Marius had established a reputation as the best general in the Roman army by defeating the formidable Numidian king Jugurtha in North Africa. He then turned his attention to the defence of Italy and inflicted a resounding defeat on the Cimbri at the Battle of Vercelli in northern Italy near Milan. Tacitus recorded that the German tribesmen were cheered on by their womenfolk a little like cheerleaders at an American football match until they were defeated by the Romans, whereupon the women killed the fugitives before killing themselves and their children. Marius was hailed a hero. According to a number of Roman historians, Marius's victories over the Cimbri and Teutones lay with major reforms of the army including the extension of recruitment to the lower classes, the so-called capite sensi, previously excluded from the ranks. Also, the introduction of a clever alteration to the Romans' javelin, which was called a pilum, uh, so that it would break in two on impact, leaving a heavy iron rivet embedded in enemy shields. And there was also an important organisational change, which was the conversion from using maniples, which had 120 soldiers, to cohorts, which had 480 soldiers uh, organised in six centuries of 80 men each, with a legion consisting of 10 cohorts, so that's 4,800 legionaries. It's also worth noting that although a Roman century implies 100 men, after Marius's time, they were organised into 80 men. He's also credited with the practice for legionaries to carry additional equipment for trenching, to dig their famously efficient marching camps, uh, also to carry cooking equipment and food rations so that they were called famously in his time Marius's mules as they marched along the straight Roman roads weighed down with their equipment. Finally, Marius was also credited with the introduction of the eagle as the legion's standard. This was a single silver eagle held aloft on a tall pole. Loyalty to the eagle became fanatical. The loss of an eagle was a fate far worse than death. In the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest, for example, in 9 AD, when three legions were destroyed, seeing that the Germans were about to break through the Roman lines, the standard bearer of one legion threw his eagle deep into a vast marsh so that it would be lost forever in the watery mud before diving in himself to drown. However, it's now doubtful whether in fact Marius was responsible for all of these reforms or whether they happened more gradually than Plutarch and other Roman historians liked to ascribe to the work of a single man. But whatever the truth, there is no doubt that the Roman army of the first century BC, which was already the most formidable military force in the ancient world, was becoming even more of a highly professional, disciplined, well-equipped army so superior to all of its peers that further military conquest and territorial expansion of the Republic was simply inevitable. 
And Marius's impact on the Republic was not just confined to the army. He was also the first of a series of politicians who strove to wield greater power than previous consuls, thereby subtly starting to move the character of the Roman Republic from a republican institution more towards a semi-monarchy and then on its way to empire. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to subscribe, tell a friend, or best of all, to leave a review. That would be fantastic. Thank you. And in the next episode, we'll look at Republican Rome's constitution in more detail and ask how democratic or not was it really? And why did it start to break down in the first century BC with men hungry for power like Julius Caesar, who is perhaps the most famous Roman of all time? Thanks for listening and see you next time. 